check. I don't know if I missed something. Yes, I did. Uh, the Welches are hosting a prayer send-off evening for the Johnsons, December 20th, Friday, December 20th. I forgot the time. Denny Angelina, can you give me the time? Ish, 6.30-ish. Okay, we'll get that information to you. I forgot to look. Or if you hang out for the announcements for next service, I'll tell you then. All right, that's uh, December 20th. What a, what a sweet, and I, I can't imagine what it's like for, to have all these kind of last times because you know Bob's is very important to sustaining life. Some of you are looking at me like you've never had bops before. Your life needs to change. <laughs> Today. Or I say that as a guy who had to give up sugar because sugar is cancer food. But every once in a while, I might find my way over to bops. All right, uh, Zechariah, if you wouldn't mind, please turn open in your Bible to Zechariah chapter 3. This is by far one of my favoriteest scripture passages, chapters in the entire Bible, because it's just got Jesus all over it, all over it. There's, it's a little easier to understand than all those other visions that Zechariah has been receiving and stuff, so it's, it's good for us uh, to be refreshed in this. But as we approach this, we're going to read about a familiar story in Jesus paying the penalty for our sins so we could have his life and live forever in his presence. But church, as we just sang, it, I remember the hymn, The Old Rugged Cross. And a lot of times the old part makes us become casual with the story. And we go into scripture, maybe we're, we're praying and we're asking the Lord for something unique, to, to a unique perspective in our lives. Lord, I'm facing a decision, I'm facing a, a climax moment in my life. I need something from you. Church, this old, old story is what you need in that moment. We can't, we can't be deceived into thinking that we need something new when we just need a fresh amazement at the glory of God who holds our lives and he says, I've got you. So no matter what our future holds, no matter what uh, parenting situation or marriage difficulty, no matter what, this story is what we use in those moments. So we, we want God to give us a, a fresh awareness for things that have a tendency to become casual and we don't pay attention to as much. Zechariah chapter 3, the word of the Lord says, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you walk in my ways and keep my charge, 
then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. And that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Lord, we ask for fresh awareness, fresh amazement, fresh wonder at the glory of that old, old story. Jesus taking away our sin in a single day. Lord, I ask for more than that, that you would not, that, that the fresh awareness would produce in us a zeal for your glory to see it show up in our lives and the mission you have us walking out. Thank you, Lord. Uh, Holy Spirit, come, illumine our minds. Take away the, the cataracts, the spiritual cataracts and floaters. Take them away so we can see you clearly. In Jesus' name. If you have attended an Alpha course, whether here or uh, perhaps years ago, if you were with us at Lakeview Christian Center across the lake, you'll remember the courtroom analogy from the discussion of the week of why Jesus had to die. The analogy, if you've not heard it, uh, is a judge. Like, the analogy follows that if you've possibly received a speeding ticket and you're standing before a judge and you're guilty, there's no way you can get yourself out of it. You're guilty. The judge declares you guilty. In order for justice to be done, because of you, maybe you have a relationship with that judge. Maybe he's an uncle. And so maybe there's a love relationship that now justice needs to be done, but love is in the equation as well. And so what happens? The judge takes off his robe, comes down off the bench, and writes a personal check to cover the cost of your speeding ticket. It's a, it's a small, simple way to describe what Jesus did for us in coming down from heaven to us in order to pay the penalty for our sin toward the Father. Now, it's, it's a helpful analogy, though it's simple. It's helpful. But this ana that analogy is scriptural because it's right in this chapter. There's a courtroom scene happening in this chapter. Zechariah receives a vision of God restoring his people so they would be in his presence forever. Zechariah sees what Jesus will accomplish, accomplish that day on the cross. There's a promise for the restoration of a lasting righteousness for God's people revealed in this vision. Remember, remember Job. Job was the first book of the Bible ever written. And it's interesting that that would be the first one. This is God's introduction for everybody for who he is. And Job's all about righteousness. Job says... I think I was righteous before the Lord and I'm suffering unjustly. His friends say, you're suffering. You can't be righteous. We think that. If I'm suffering, God must be mad at me. His friend Bildad asked him in Job 25, how then can man be in the right before God? The question of righteousness. How can man be connected to him? Job's even asking, if I had somebody to put his hand on me and God, I need an arbiter. I need somebody that can fight my case. All of those little things, the first book of the Bible written, 
kind of show up in this situation? The greatest question after the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3 was the wonder of how to regain access to God's holy and righteous presence. How would the separation that sin has created, how would that separation be closed? Israel proved they couldn't establish their own righteousness even when God gave them the law and the sacrifices to help them along. They still didn't uh, live by faith. So in this passage, this vision to Zechariah promises an eternal access to God based on a righteousness that he gives. This is a vision of God's justice accomplished and applied. Now, in this cosmic courtroom scene that Zechariah gets a glimpse of, it allows us to see what's happening as well. The first thing we see is there's a charge, and the charge is sinful. We have a defendant. That defendant is Joshua. The courtroom scene sees Joshua, who is the high priest, literal person Joshua. Even though Zechariah is seeing him in a vision, he's a literal person. He is the high priest, descendant from Aaron, who was given charge uh, to be the priestly high uh, presence in the temple tabernacle than the temple and joshua in this vision is standing as a representative of god's people who have returned from exile and ultimately as a representative of all god's people throughout history we have defendant joshua at his right we have a plaintiff and it's satan himself He's in this divine council. We can recall that this is a regular place for Satan to appear. Remember Job again, Job chapter 1, verse 6. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And we don't know exactly why Satan, who is evil, why he's allowed in this council. But we can be sure that he's not in the council as a voting member. It's a council of one. God Almighty stands and, or sits over this council. We're just allowed to know that angelic beings and spirits come to report to God there, and Satan is one of those. Satan is there to do what he does, and that's accuse. The, the root word for Satan and accuse in Hebrew is the same thing. So his very name means accuse. Satan is described as many things in Scripture. Deceiver, murderer, thief, liar. But the role, the, the primary role he plays is in Scripture and in our own lives is that of accuser. Revelation 10, uh, 12, verse 10 says, I heard a voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. So we apply that to this and see that he's accusing Joshua relentlessly. Where does, he, where does Satan accuse? He, accuse? he accuses us in front of God, in God's counsel, but he also accuses us in our minds. A weird thing. I was leaving here, I don't know if it was Thursday or Friday, uh, it was yesterday, I came here for something, I was leaving, and they have a little uh, Christmas boutique thing set up on Lee Lane, and I see this, this young lady who's at a table with a computer, and an older gentleman was doing this. And I'm thinking, is that a joke? I actually looked at it like, I, it's kind of funny, he's kind of little girl you, you but then I, I looked at her face and she was not happy 
And then as I passed, I kind of caught a glimpse, and I saw his face. He was mad. I thought, exactly what Satan does to us. Now, I should have. I thought about stopping and saying, no matter what's going on here, you shouldn't do that. But it was a, it was a quick glimpse of what I think we see Satan in our lives wagging his finger at us saying you are worthless. Never do anything right. Those are his accusations. And he comes at us day and night. Calls us sinner and shames us into feeling numb in every aspect of our lives. Not only is his language relentless, it's vulgar in the aspect of pouncing on us to get us to feel worthless. But here's the reality. Joshua is standing there as the defendant, Satan to his right, accusing him. Joshua doesn't say a word because Satan's right. He's guilty of this sin. The reason Satan's accusation has so much success over us is because it's true. We are indeed sinful. We know, everyone else knows, Satan knows it, God knows it. That's why Joshua doesn't say anything in this courtroom. Not a word comes from his mouth. He's silent in his guilt. Not only are we sinful, we're more sinful than we realize. This is why Joshua is clothed in filthy clothes. It's a demonstration of the the effect, but not just the effect, the, the totality of how sin affects us. We, we tend to picture dirty clothes as if he, maybe he was playing tackle football in the mud and he came over and that's the, the filthy clothes he was wearing. But that's not what the original language conveys. In Hebrew, the word for filthy is the same word for excrement and vomit. That's what we are covered with, which brings a stench to it. He's filthy and he stinks in his filth. Richard Phillips, in his commentary on this passage, says there is a great problem that stands in the way of every utopian dream. It corrupts every program, condemns all plans, all our plans, and confounds all our promises. The problem is sin. Sin is the infection that contaminates mankind and corrodes our very vision and destroys our very hope, destroys our every hope. Sin is also the guilt that mars our splendor like graffiti on a new painted wall or like a new garment that's dragged through an open sewer. Sin is real. Sin is pervasive. Sin finds its root in in the pride of self-rule. I want to say what's right for me when I want it. So everybody, and and we expect everybody else to agree with us in that moment, we want what we want when we want it, and we will fight and devour till we get it. Every sin is pride, but get this. Every sin is not committed proudly. So even our, our best intentions, even trying to serve somebody, if we're trying to rule ourselves and establish our own righteousness before God, that's an act done in pride. It's not proudly done but it's a self-centered act because I'm trying, to, I'm trying to work up my own performance and my own merit so I can go before God and say, God, see, it makes sense to me that my good outweighs my bad, so it should make sense to you. 
doesn't make sense to God that way. We love to sin. And we think what we do is right. Proverbs 26, like a dog that returns to its vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. That's all of us. Left to up to our self-rule, I get to determine my own fate. I get to determine who I am and how I want that expressed in my life. I, I, I rule myself. We're fools, the Bible says. The fool in Scripture is somebody who lives not under the authority of God, but under the authority of self. That's the fool. But here's the fact. When, when we're in touch with our own sinfulness and the pervasiveness of our sin, we don't pretend to be better anymore, and we have no way to defend ourselves. Joshua is silent. We're silent, too, when we really understand our sin. But what do we do in that moment when we're feeling that condemnation? First, recognize that Satan only works with half-truths. Yes, I'm sinful. But Satan wants to me to convince me so much that I stay in there that God's condemnation will never be released from me. But in that battle, in that moment, here's the second thing we need to do. Hear the voice that speaks to Satan instead of us. The Lord rebukes Satan for his accusations. And this angel of the Lord is Jesus himself, we see. That's Jesus telling Satan, shut up. You don't win right now. There's something else going on that, that I need to remind you of. See, Satan wants us to hear his voice and will disguise his voice to sound as if it's God accusing us. Because he's the, he's, he, he disguises himself as an angel of light. To fight Satan's accusations, we need to use God's voice to kick him out of our minds. The same way that Jesus used scripture to, in the wilderness when he was tempted by Satan himself. This means we don't use our own voice. Or our own ill-advised reasonings for how we, we just... We just need to be better. Those don't work. What do we need to do? We need to recognize what God has done. See, there's a charge, and the charge is true, but there's also a rebuttal, and the rebuttal is true. We see this in verses 3 through 7. There are two reasons God uses to defend Joshua to Satan. The first is God's sovereign choice over his people, and the second is his sovereign grace extended to his people. These are crucial truths, and they're weapons of our spiritual warfare. When, when we are in the doldrums of temptation, when we're in the doldrums of condemnation, we need to remember we are chosen and God's grace has saved us. God's choice of his people is never, ever dependent on the moral ability of his people. That's what we're convinced of. We're convinced that God chooses us because we are morally beautiful. We have done well. We've worked well. We've got a lot of good works associated with us doesn't work in God's economy. We don't catch God's attention with our good works. We are filthy and unable to rescue our wayward desires. God sets his love on his people. Not because of moral beauty in them, not because of, of a moral perfection, simply because he chooses to set his love on his people. Now we can be little three-year-olds and ask why, why, why? why? I think heaven will be that, because God doesn't get irritated with those types of questions of why, like we do when a child's asking that, but we can say why, and all God is going to do is simply say, because, because I said so, because, 
And you know what? There's going to be a joy in us that's going to keep on stirring and growing, and we're going to worship God because we just see the beauty and the glory of it. Say, God, you just, God, you chose me. You chose me. Moses reminded God's people in Deuteronomy 7. It was not because you were more in number than any of the people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Why does God love us? Because. Doesn't that settle our hearts? Because we want to fill it in. Because I've done something for him. I've been an obedient boy. That's why. Nope. Simply loves us. But look, it carries over. The Old Testament carries over. God's love for his wayward people is evident all throughout the Old Testament and the New. In Ephesians 5. I'm sorry, 1. 3 to 5. <laughs> blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will he chose us remember in college reading through that and seeing he chose us before the foundation of the world and something in me kind of stirred I'm like but when I was 11 I said Jesus please save me and he did My prayer of salvation at 11 years old was the fruition of what God set in motion and determined before he said, let there be light. Why? Because. Because. Not by any works I've done in righteousness. Simply because he's God and he loves extending his grace to his people. God reminded Satan of his choice over Jerusalem, representative of all of his people. And we can do the same with Satan when we face his fiery darts. That's the shield of faith. No, he chose me, and I've received that by faith. God's choice of us isn't lost. Listen, God's choice of us is not lost or damaged when we sin. We have a better promise to fight with. We have grace his choice and his grace to, to fight with. God posed a question to Satan. Is not this a brand, which is a burning stick, plucked from the fire? God's sovereign choice is coupled with his sovereign grace to save us from sin's destruction, which is that fire is the fire of God's judgment. What sin had been killing, he saved by grace. Ephesians 2.8, for grace you have been saved through faith. And it wasn't because he preferred a particular shape over one of those sticks than another stick. Nothing catches his eye like that. He simply says, you, you. The awe and wonder of God's grace is further realized when we understand that he doesn't save every stick out of the fire. He doesn't save everyone. Now, there is a true component to God that says he desires everyone to repent and turn from their sins 
yes, that God, that we, we struggle sometimes with that God, God can have both of those dwelling in him. But the reality we know from Jesus is that there are many. The, the path is wide that leads to destruction, and many are those who find it. But the path is narrow that leads to eternal life, and few find it. Now, I, I've wondered, why doesn't God save everyone? Because I have loved ones that are not believers, and I really, really, really want them to be spared from God's judgment so they can live eternally with him in heaven. But when I think about why God doesn't save everyone, I, I don't have his reasonings on why not. Now, as I put things together, I we can have, we might not have perfect resolution to the questions that we have with God, but we can have reasonable explanations. And there's a difference with those. The culture says, give me a perfect explanation for who God is or else I'm not believing in him. Christianity says, biblical Christianity says, no, I have reasonable explanations because God's myster he's mysterious and I don't know. He, he, he dwells in an infinity of characteristics that, that he's only revealed portions of to me. But when I recognize that he saved me, now I think a reasonable explanation is that we see a beauty of a diamond when we have a, a black mat underneath it. And the light is able to shine. Sin causes that black mat. Now, when I put myself in that category, go, why would I ever be that diamond sitting on there? Why would you save me out of that sin and put a diamond? I don't know. And God says, because. And I say, then I'm going to worship you because it increases the value of what you've done for me. It increases the value of your sacrifice and your sovereign choice and your sovereign grace. It increases our, our gratitude and our praise. But after that, you know, ha having put Satan in his place, God doesn't talk to Satan anymore. I love that. Just, he's done talking with Satan. I'm done with you. Get out. Now I've got something to do with Joshua. He turns to Joshua and commands the exchange of his clothes. The filthy garments are removed completely. The filthy garments were removed completely and then replaced. Now, God didn't tell Joshua to wash his clothes. Like, just go clean yourself up and come back here and be more presentable in my presence. He didn't tell him that. As if he only needed to freshen up his own resolve to be better. God took the penalty of sin and its effects completely away from Joshua. This is his saving grace in action. He has forgiven his people as he's communicated to Joshua as their representative. He's committed, uh, he's, he's forgiven the exiles, but we have the promise later on for the rest of Scripture that he's forgiven all of those who will repent of their, their sins and trust him for salvation. But there's a replacing. God then replaced Joshua's clothes with pure vestments. He gave him clothing that was outside of his, his ability to get, outside of his intellect, to acquire outside of his performance to ever secure. We can't miss the placement of the purity. Purity wasn't discovered by Joshua. It was placed on him. The holiness he, long, he needed, he longed for, was not something found inside of him. It was put on him. He received the purity, like we receive salvation by faith. Now, our cultural narrative, if we listen to it well enough, our cult, you don't have to listen very difficult, deeply, is that inside of me is good and the problem is on the outside. So if, I, if we can fix the outside around people, then the inside good will come out. 
So we, we focus on education. We focus on making sure that people have what they need. And, and the, those cultural narratives gain weight. And they, yeah, because inside of me, it's all these other people. And the therapeutic uh, movement really po- started to point a finger at, I'm good. And oh, yeah, it was, it was my parents. It was the person in schools, my friend. It was everybody else's fault. Which really is what we see Adam do when he sinned. Made me do it. Blame shifting is as old as that. Our culture now says it's good, so let's change the outside. God says, oh, no, 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 it's inside that's bad. We've got to change the inside. But we change it from something outside of us. We change it from a pure vestment that's placed on us, and then we know that vestment represents the righteousness that only comes through Christ. It only comes and, and Theologians call that an alien righteousness. We need a righteousness outside of ourselves that comes to us. And Jesus was that righteousness from the outside given to us. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And right after that, verse 5, Zechariah says something. He interjects in this. He's talking in his sleep. Remember these are night visions? I don't know if he's sleeping, dreaming it. He's talking in his sleep. I said, I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. He adds his own line. I think, I'm not quite sure exactly why, but when I put this together, when we see and we contemplate the wonder and awe of God's work of grace, it brings out a response. Now, Zechariah was a priest, and he understood the vestments Joshua was clothed with as a high priest. And we have that, how they're uh, dressed and what they should be given all the way back in Exodus. Each segment of his vestments communicated God's choice and God's grace toward his people. As, as a visual representation of that, Zechariah added his voice to God to complete God's work on Joshua. And I think there's a unique realm that we as believers, we do that. When we pray, we're asking for God to complete his work on somebody. And Zechariah knows, no, he needs a turban on his head because that's crucial as well. The turban for the high priest had an inscription on the front, holy for the Lord. It was a gold plate that was down and the turban sat above it. It said, holy for the Lord on there. The name of the holy one on the representative of the nation meant the whole nation was holy and could stay in God's presence. Exodus 28 says, You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. And you shall fasten it on the turban by a cord of blue. It shall be on the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead. And Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. Now, when this turban goes on the head, look what happens in verse 6. He's described, if you walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you will rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I, courts, and I will give you the right of access. Access is granted to Joshua, but as the representative, it's granted to all God's people. The people of God, once clothed with God's righteousness, are holy forever before him. The next part of the vision shows that Joshua and the people of God are given this right of access because they're now holy with the righteousness that's been placed on them. 
But check out what the access is. It's equal access. Get that again. If you walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. Who has that? Jesus has that. That's what was given to him as a response and a gift. He was, uh, we were given him as a gift, and we share with him in the rule and the access and the charge of the courts. Now, his rule and charge is the accomplishment of his mission, and that's why we're on mission with him. That's how we exercise that rule. That's how we have that charge. The assurance of the access is through obedience to God. We are to walk in his ways and keep his charges. Does this mean after all that God did to remove sin, Joshua could lose it all if he disobeyed? No. I don't think so. Our obedience to God doesn't get us into God's kingdom. Our obedience allows us to experience the fullness of the kingdom. Our obedience doesn't get in, us in the gate, in the, the kingdom walls. Our obedience within the kingdom walls gets us to experience everything that's there, gets us to shop. It, we can shop everywhere. We can eat at every restaurant. And it's just keeping that little medieval kingdom uh, in, analogy in your head. It gets us to enjoy the festival that's going on in the, the town. When we obey, we feast. When we disobey, we refuse to eat like a child pouting, trying to get his or her way. Obedience is necessary to enjoy God, as well as to remind us of his saving grace and choice. When we obey, that's also a confidence that we have. Okay, I'm obeying the Lord. That's a sign of salvation. A sign, it's a fruitfulness of God's choice because we're his servants. In all of this work of grace, God, how, we have to think about how his justice has been upheld because all he's done is removed and forgiven, but we have so many scriptures that tell us without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. God's justice has not been upheld yet, but he's getting ready to explain that. How will his justice be upheld? How will it be accomplished? Because what we've really been talking about is how it's applied. Sin is removed. Righteousness comes on us. This is how it's accomplished. We have the acquittal, which is now a declaration of righteous over us. God will accomplish his justice by sacrificing himself to purchase and secure the pure vestments for his people. He purchases and secures those vestments through his servant, Branch. This is a, a reference to kingship within the, the Old Testament, as God promised that in Isaiah 11, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the, the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. This is a perfect king. So when Jesus comes along, and says, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
the Son of Man, when the disciples heard that, they heard Daniel chapter 7, Son of Man, meant authority. It didn't mean he was one of us. We kind of interpret it that way. But it meant king. The king came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Not only will the branch decree righteousness by his character and authority, he will be sacrificed to remove the judgment of God towards sin. The servant will be sacrificed and take away iniquity in a single day. Now the point of reference for Zechariah is the day of atonement that's in Leviticus 16 when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies that one day of year with the blood that he sprinkled on the mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant so God, God's people could remain in his presence even though they were sinful. Our point of reference is Jesus who shed his blood on the cross that day. As the final sacrifice for sin, so mercy would extend from him. He's the servant king who died to bring us under his rule, to share in his rule forever in his presence. God says there's a stone that's placed. Instead of that, there's a headband, but there's also a stone that's going to be placed there with seven eyes. It also means facets. It could be different sides. But the eyes in Scripture usually meant God's knowledge. And we see that in Ezekiel chapter 1 with the wheels, with eyes all over them. It's God's omniscience. He sees everything. He knows everything. We know that he's accomplishing according to the purpose of his will. We read that in Ephesians 1, uh, the end of uh, verse 5 in Ephesians 1. The reference also points to how Jesus would be the stone the builders rejected that became the capstone for the church to be gathered and built. And look, verse 10 is a mission statement. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. This is righteousness now on mission. Those who have pure vestments by the blood of Christ have the promise of security and fruitfulness. The vine in Scripture represents the accomplishing of God's will. And when we get grafted into that vine, we are secured by his power. Big tree, on the other hand, represents the fruitfulness of God's people. God wants his people, us, to bear fruit for the lost to benefit from so they turn to him in awe and in wonder. So when we live life, people should be seeing an assurance about us. They should be seeing a fruitfulness in our lives that gets them to say, but look, we say, come. We invite. We invite people to enjoy what we have. We, we invite others to enjoy our fruitfulness. We invite others to enjoy our security. This means for us, church, that we have full assurance and confidence in God's work. God will accomplish it. He has accomplished it, and he will continue to accomplish it. Philippians 1, verse 6, and I am sure of this, the Apostle Paul says, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What are we bringing to completion? We are asking God to complete, just like, just like Zechariah said, put a turban on his head. He's asking for God to complete his work. We're saying, God, complete your work in me. What I am spiritually, make it happen physically in my life. For the day that I'm with you, and all of those are joined together, and there's no more sin that I'm battling. There's no more accusations I have to deal with in my mind. I'm with you forever. Let's pray. Father, we trust that as we have rehearsed your word, 
faith has risen in our hearts. God, we ask that that would, would be completed. So God, with all assurance, because we know what Jesus did for us on the cross, in our place, something that we could never do, with all assurance of that, God, we ask that you would complete your work in us for your glory and for our good. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now look, here, here's a commission. We're not going to read it out loud, so please fight that urge. Because Jesus said it to them. Let's hear it in a unique way. You have a righteousness that God's given you, and it's to go on mission. So hear the Savior say, go therefore. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you because they're looking at your lives and you're observing that. So now they have an example that they can follow. But listen, I'm with you always. With you always. That day I bring you to my presence and we see each other face to face. The end of Amen. Amen. Be blessed.